We're going to go back to chapter 5. We left our study there a couple months ago. It seems hard to believe it's been that long, right? But um, so much had happened in the first couple chapters that we looked at throughout the fall. And it started, chapter 1, with the apostles praying. It's interesting, just to kind of give a little recap this morning, it's interesting that they didn't scatter after Jesus left, because I'm sure that might have been the temptation and the propensity is just to go back to their lives like they did after the resurrection. But they were faithful to fulfill the calling that he gave him and to wait uh, for what he had promised. And they did that by calling on the Lord and preparing their hearts and fully expecting God to work. And he did that. We saw that in chapter 2 when he gave them a new empowering of the Spirit. And we see the first bold expression of the gospel going forth. The first time the apostles really get up and stand up and say, this is what we believe. And when that happens, when the church, so to speak, starts to speak forth what they believe, we know what happens. Thousands of people get saved. Every day, people are getting saved. Why? Because there's a correlation. When people speak about their faith, guess what happens? People get saved. When people don't speak about their faith, what do you think happens? Tell me. People don't get saved. Right? The Spirit convicts, sure, and the Spirit works in people's hearts. But Jesus also said, your commission, your job, is to go into the world and do what? Preach the gospel. Go into the world and speak about me. And as the apostles do that, first in Jerusalem, and then they're going to scatter as we get into the book, but first in Jerusalem they stand up and say, we're going to tell you what we believe. We're going to tell you about Jesus Christ, and people get saved in droves. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. So when we speak the gospel, people get saved. When we talk about Jesus Christ, people come to know Him. Now, as they do this, the church begins to form. And it's not a structured organization. We don't see all kinds of, of layers of leadership We just see an organic move of the Spirit that the church starts to form as people come to Christ. And and people gather daily and they start to do what we would term the functions of the church. They start to pray and worship and study God's Word and eat together and, and talk about the Lord. And at that point, everything they're doing defies logic. Because you would think based on the Gospels, that these people are weak, these people are unsure, they're, they're timid, they don't really know what to do, they don't have their act together, and yet everything we see, starting in Acts 1, starts to be strong and focused and unified. And even when they face their first test, when the beggar is healed and they're called in and they're arrested and all that, there's no backing down. And again and again, throughout the first five, six chapters of the book of Acts, The Spirit reiterates the health of the church. It reiterates uh, how, how focused they were on fulfilling the purpose that the Lord had given them. Because what we're seeing here, Acts 1 to 5, is God's ideal for the church. Now the tendency is to think this is outdated, and this is passe, and this is something of the past, and because it's an ideal, it can't be realized now. Let me assure you this morning that Acts 1-5 to is what the Lord wants for this church. It's what the Lord wants for the Christian church. 
And later we're going to see in the epistles, God gives remedy the remedy for what the problems are. And, and when problems occur, because people aren't living in the ideal and they forget about it, and they don't, they're not hearing the warning of the Spirit of what the ideal should look like, then God has to write and say, this is how you solve that. But we need to see that Acts 1-5 to is the ideal of what God wants. And then there's a transition. And it starts in chapter 5. We saw this in our last study back in November. We saw Ananias and Sapphira, and they committed an intentional deception. The Spirit used two phrases in verses 1-8 to about what they had done. First of all, they had lied to the Holy Spirit. And second of all, they had put the Spirit to the test. In other words, they had played with the truth. They made the decision. We, we can corrupt what God has intended. We can alter the truth. We can lie. And then we, by extension, and they may not have been intentional about this, but let's mess with the body. Because everything up to chapter 5, verse 1, had been smooth and wonderful and unified and focused and then all of a sudden you have these two people and they decide that they're going to mess with that. And I want you to notice that God deals with it very severely. The church is not a religious social club. The church is not a place where we come for our benefit. Let's never forget that this is His body. We are His people. This is His assembly it's not us, it's not mine, it's not yours, it's not so we can make a name, it's not so people can know about us. This is the body of Christ, this is His. And guess what? When somebody tries to corrupt it or divide it, God deals very seriously with that. That's why it looks like this is kind of harsh discipline toward Ananias and Sapphira. But notice in verse 11, we'll read it, that the people really get the message. They get the message, it says... Verse 11, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. That's important to note because the pressure is about to ramp up and the trial and opposition is about to increase exponentially. But I want you to see that that great fear took over the church. Not just because people had died. But great fear came over the church because people understood again the power of God and the expectation of God. And not only notice that, that the church got that, but look at the last phrase of verse 11. It says, all who heard about these things had fear too. Listen, when the Lord is moving and the church is praying and we're living by God's standards, not only will we notice it, but other people, including non-believers, will notice it and they'll be drawn toward it. The church should be distinctive in its character. The church should be set apart for God. Because we know and love the Lord. And it should be powerful in its ministry because we're calling on the Lord and we trust the Lord and we're walking by His Spirit. So as fear took over the church, as God moved in a powerful way, in this case in terms of discipline, not only did the church fall under fear, but everyone around them noticed it. And people began to fear the Lord in a new way. Now that leads us to chapter 5, verse 12. And we needed all that context because as we said in our last study, there's this shift that takes place. And it's caused by this first real open sin in the body. But I also want you to see this morning how the church responds. Because they don't lose heart here and they don't lose focus. They just continue to have a spirit-filled, spirit-led ministry. Start in verse 12. We're going to read down to verse 16. 
At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. To such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them out on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also the people from the cities in the city of vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. I want you to notice, first of all, that there were many signs and wonders, this is in verse 12, that were taking place. Now, when we read sections like this, the question usually comes up about why authentic signs and wonders seem to take place and be more prominent in the book of Acts than they are today. And I believe there are two main reasons for this. One is that the Lord used these types of acts when the church was young to confirm that while Christ was back in heaven, that the Holy Spirit had come, who the Bible calls the Spirit of Christ. In other words, God had not left His people without His presence and without His power. And the apostles needed that. They needed that constant reminder that they should have strength and boldness and courage for ministry because the Lord was with them, the Lord was helping them, the Lord was guiding them, and the Lord was using them to fulfill the commission that He had given to them. So some part of the signs and wonders were intended to strengthen and embolden the apostles. The second reason is that those signs and wonders were a validation of the apostles' ministry. Not only did it give them confidence uh, to, to do the work that God had given them, but it also spoke to those that they were reaching for Christ. And we see that even back in 11. The people that were following, the, the people that were looking at them, the, the outside crowd that was looking at them, had seen them following Jesus. And now they needed to know that these men and women were not helpless. Because they had viewed the apostles, they knew what was going on, they had seen the timidity of the apostles. Not only do the gospel writers record that, but the crowds had seen it. So now you've got Jesus gone. Everybody's wondering what's going on. Remember, this is still very fresh within a year of Jesus returning to heaven. So there's still a, 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 a kind of a buzz around the city of where did Jesus go and what are his apostles going to do now? And then there was Pentecost and the huge volume of people that got saved. And now the apostles' ministry starts and they start to, to show uh, up more often and be more prominent and they're healing people, and there's a power to the words, and the, uh, the authorities are starting to oppose them. Now the crowd needs to see that these men and women had the power of God. And that they weren't just faking this. They weren't just continuing a pipe dream because Jesus were, was gone, and they weren't just putting on a show. They had legitimate power. Now much of the reason why we don't see the evidence of signs and wonders so prominently in 2012 is because there is not as much need, listen now, for this foundational validation of the apostles' ministry. At the time Acts 5 was written, they did not have the complete written word of God. 
people could not read the message of the Bible. They were relying on priests to interpret it for them. And the Bible, when we have it, when we hold this book, think of the power of this book in your hands. When we have this, we read the complete revelation of God. We learn about God's character. We learn about God's ways. We learn about man's sin. We learn about salvation and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And we even get a taste of what the future looks like. They didn't have this. So God validates the ministry of the disciples and gives the people an understanding that he is real, that Jesus had empowered them and indwelled them, that the Spirit had come, and that this ministry was authentic. Now, that's not to say that God still doesn't work in miraculous ways. He can do that. He does do that. And we must be careful as believers never to limit our expectations of what God can and will do. That's what makes prayer and that's what makes faith so dynamic. Prayer is not designed to be stagnant. God, thank you for my, my health and thank you for blessing me and, and please guide me and, and, and please bless me. And I mean, faith, prayer, prayer isn't designed to be like that. Prayer is an intimate connection, a relationship where we go to the throne of grace and we let a request be made known. And part of our requests are praying, God, work in miraculous ways. So we can't say, well, God's limited. God can't do that anymore. It's changed. The Spirit doesn't work in miraculous ways anymore. You know what? Prove that. Prove that God doesn't work in miraculous ways. But what is authentic here, listen now, is often discounted by the widespread inauthenticity of people who misuse God's word and deceive God's people by claiming special power. And they usually do it either to boost their ego or to make money or both. That's why the Spirit of God establishes very clear guidelines about how we are supposed to discern what is authentic, test the spirits, and how we are to use our spiritual gifts. Because here's the problem with the misuse of spiritual gifts. When we misuse spiritual gifts, it actually drives people further away from the Lord rather than drawing to the Lord. And the whole purpose of spiritual gifts is to edify the body and bring people to Christ. If your gifts are not being used for that purpose, then they are being misused. And notice too in verse 12 that even though these signs and wonders are taking place, that the church is still in one accord. Now that's a huge contrast if you look later at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because all throughout the first 12 chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is admonishing the Corinthian church for how they were misusing spiritual gifts to, to be selfish and to draw attention to themselves. And the problem in Corinth was the church was fractured and lacking in power because people were running around saying, look at me, I have special power, I'm better than you, I'm more important than you, you're nothing. Now that's completely opposite of what we see in chapter 5, verse 12. Because the church at this point has signs and wonders, we don't understand what that looked like, but, but they had a special empowering of the, of the Lord, and they were using those gifts, and yet they were not using them to draw attention to themselves or to brag about it. 
They were of one mind. So here's the bottom line. Hope I haven't lost you. I haven't lost you, right? Good. I love when you, I don't lose you. Because I've lost myself. Here's the bottom line. We should not overemphasize signs and wonders. Because they can become a point of pride and take the focus off Christ. We should also not discount how the Holy Spirit wants to work whenever He wants to work. But the real point is that we should not get distracted and debate these issues and argue whether they're still active, whether they're inactive, or who has them or who doesn't have them, because those arguments are just opinion. What we need to see in chapter 5, verse 12, look back at it, is that the Lord used these times to open the door of ministry for His disciples. No longer are people looking at them and questioning their qualifications. No longer are people looking at them and saying, I wonder if the power of God is really in them. The Lord had provided for them, and now they can focus on what they're called to, and they can do the work of ministry in the way God's called them to. That may be why that the description of signs and wonders mostly tapers off after chapter 5. If you look through the rest of the book, there are very few examples of miraculous works after chapter 5. There are some visions that people have to get clarity on what God's want, but mostly the second half of the book of Acts is about the advance of the gospel to the Gentiles, the preaching of the word, and people getting converted, and people opposing it. It's also why, when you look at the rest of the New Testament, there's so little about signs and wonders, and so much about theology, and about walking in holiness, and about living by the word, and living by the spirit, and protecting the church from sin and error, and preparing for the return of Christ. In fact, from this point on, chapter 5, verse 12, the Spirit de-emphasizes the miracles of the apostles, not because they stopped, but because He doesn't want us to miss the point that the gospel now needed to expand to the world. And these signs and wonders had been a validation to, to encourage them, to get the people's attention, and to prepare them for what had to happen. So when we get to verse 13 of chapter 5, we start to see the gospel now go out. And it's interesting, the description the Spirit gives here, because there are certain responses that happen when we live for the Lord and take a strong stand for the gospel. Look at the verse. Look at verse 13. Look how some people didn't dare associate with them. They had a powerful ministry. They were doing miraculous things. People were getting saved. But there were some people that didn't dare have anything to do with them because there was such an incredible peer pressure within the culture to stay away from them. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't be with those crazy Christians. When we live for the Lord like we're supposed to, when we stand for the Lord like Acts called us to, there are going to be people that look at us and say, I don't have anything to do with them. Those people are nuts. Those people are out there. They, they, they are too convicted. Wouldn't you love to be called too convicted? Those people are, are too, 
too strict. They have, they have too many values. They, they should relax and back down a little bit and, and, and be more, more, more relevant to what people need. You know what? People need the gospel. They need the gospel. They don't need a bunch of soft Christians walking around saying whatever goes. If that's going to save the world, I'm in the wrong profession. People didn't associate them. But look at the last brothers. I love how the Spirit encourages us. None of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Conviction always brings respect. We get so nervous about how people are going to perceive us and that people will think we're weird if we stand for what is biblical and holy. And you know what? The enemy makes sure to reinforce those lies and to provide us with just enough rejection to make us insecure. But the fact is that while people will stand against us and oppose us and reject us, while they're doing that publicly, privately they'll be saying, but I really respect them. People may think you're out there, but I guarantee you, they look at your life and if they see conviction and they see you standing for the Lord, they'll respect you. And let's not forget that it doesn't matter if they respect us because look at what happens. Verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. The point is not whether people like us. The point is not even whether people respect us. The point is, are people getting saved? And it says here that multitudes were constantly added. That word multitude in the Greek means a huge number. This was not dozens. It wasn't hundreds. I don't even think it was thousands. This was tens of thousands of people. And it wasn't a one-time shot. It was a daily occurrence. Now again... There's no formula, there's no strategy, there's no man-made equation. They're not emotionally manipulating the people. They prayed, they yielded to the power of the Spirit, they were open and unashamed in their conviction, they had a bold witness, they were unified, and they were selfless. That's it. They didn't get together and have a big strategy session and say, now how exactly are we going to accomplish what God told us to accomplish. I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying in Acts, they didn't do that. They called on the Lord. And they said, Lord, you show us. And when the time came, they stood for their convictions. And, and, and they had a bold witness. And they said, we got to do this together now. Come on, no, no egos. No egos. We saw what happened with Ananias and Sapphira when people got selfish. We have to guard against that. We need to stand boldly for the Lord. We need to preach the gospel. And we need to call on the name of the Lord and expect the Spirit to move. And as they did that, multitudes of people got saved. You want a church growth strategy? There it is, Acts 5.14. God blessed them. And look at what happens next. Verse 15, the Spirit filled them with fresh power to the extent that the sick would sit in the streets because they would hope that as Peter walked by, that his shadow would fall on them. This is an incredibly unique situation. And we only see this here in Acts 5. 
The Spirit does not say that people were healed by his shadow, although it certainly seems to be that that's the inference. But more important than that, we need to focus that people recognize the power of the Lord in their lives. It's like chapter 413, where it says they looked at them and saw that they had been with Jesus. Well, that's the same thing that's happening here in chapter 5, verse 15. People that are sick, people that are demon-possessed, people that are hurting, people that are spiritually uh, lost will come and they would sit in the streets and as Peter walked by, they would hope just to be in his shadow. This wasn't magic. This is not some kind of hocus-pocus thing where Peter's doing all this junk. This is just Peter going about the business of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And people were so drawn to the power of Christ in him that they said, we just want to be near him. Maybe if his shadow falls on us, God will work in a powerful way. Even that image of a shadow is evocative that Peter stood between the light of heaven and the person and that it had a tremendous impact on the person's life. This is very similar to what happened in Jesus' ministry when people came from all over Galilee to be healed. And that had to embolden the apostles at this point. His word was being fulfilled in them. And I think they spent time at night when they were just talking around the dinner table and they would think back to the time in Matthew chapter 17 where the man came, the demon-possessed son, and he said to Jesus, I brought my son to your disciples and they couldn't do anything. They couldn't heal him. They couldn't cast that demon out. They had no power. It was so different now. Now people were coming to them. But how many know that when God's presence and God's power is evident, there will always be opposition. And that's what happens here in verse 17. Let's read down to verse 26. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain, the temple guard, and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about this and about what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Hey, the men who you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. Praise God. And the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. Notice the last phrase. For they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. The high priest and all his associates become irritated. And he orders that they should be thrown in jail. Now, the apostles aren't violating the law at this point. They're not being destructive. The, the situation with Ananias and Sapphira was a private church matter. 
They're just walking around. There's not evidence in chapter 5 that they're out on the street corners with a bullhorn preaching. They're not holding a healing service. They're, they're not public. But it says that the council was filled with jealousy. Now, why are they jealous? Because jealousy is always rooted in pride. And now the people are drawn to the apostles and respect the apostles. And the apostles aren't educated. And the Sadducees and priests are arrogant in their intellect. And the apostles have power and they don't. And the apostles don't have any literal authority or legal authority, but they have heavenly authority, and that irritates the Sadducees. And the apostles are confident in God's word and talking about the resurrection, and these people don't believe in that. The Sadducees believed in the Torah. They functioned as priests, but they did not believe that the soul is immortal. They did not believe that there is life after death. So they certainly didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which meant that if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, you don't believe in the work of Christ, and you don't believe in his power to save souls. So they have a natural bias against the gospel and against the apostles. And as the apostles capture the ears of the people, and people start to turn, and thousands are getting saved, the council decides we have to silence this teaching about Jesus. And this time, they arrest all the apostles. Not just Peter and John. They arrest all of them. And this is interesting because the, all the apostles have not really been trustworthy and faithful in the past to deal with difficulty. Now they're put in jail overnight. Now I want you to stop here in verse 18. Look at it because there's a very important spiritual principle. And that is that the enemy's attack is always to bind the enemy's attack is always to bind. He wants people's minds to be in bondage to what is selfish and filthy, what is not sourced in God's truth, what contradicts God's word, and what the Lord says is right and best. He wants people to be in bondage to sin and self-fulfillment. He wants relationships to be in bondage to, to jealousy and lust and lack of love and lack of sacrifice. He wants every single marriage, Christian or non-Christian, to fail, and he wants the church to fail. He wants believers to be in bondage to the old self, to not walk with a renewed mind, to not live by the Spirit. He wants to bind the ministry of the church. He wants to stop the spread of the gospel by distracting and corrupting believers and by dividing the body in any way that he can. He wants everything to be bound. And everything that Christ did is to free. Here is the spiritual war, the spiritual battle that is going on all around us. Satan wants us to be bound to sin and God wants us to be free to righteousness. Now, if you this morning are under bondage to something, if you are still clinging to sin, if you have never been freed by Christ, and delivered to the power of God in your life, then that is from the enemy. But you also need to know that Jesus Christ can deliver you from that bondage to sin forever. Romans 6 says that because of his resurrection, our old self is crucified so that the old body might be done away with 
so that we would no longer be slaves, we'd no longer be in bondage to sin, we'd no longer be in jail eternally to sin, because Christ frees us from sin. But you have to stop believing that you can free yourself from that bondage by just trying really hard. Only Christ can save you from that. Only Christ can deliver you from that forever. And if you don't know Him this morning, right now, in the privacy of your heart, call on His name and ask Him to free you. Because He will. Christian, are we still living in bondage, even though we've been delivered? Paul talks about this in Romans 5-8. to Are we still locking ourselves daily in the bondage of sin, walking back into the jail cell and shutting it and saying, I prefer to be here rather than in the freedom that God has given me? Are we denying our flesh? Are we living for Him? Or are we still holding on to what we know is contrary to God's Word and contrary to God's holiness and then saying, why won't God bless me? God will never bless us if we continue to live in bondage. Because He freed us from that. The bondage is always the enemy's goal. So it's no surprise here in verse 18 that he thinks that he can bind the apostles not only physically, but in terms of their boldness and their desire to do the work of the gospel. See, the enemy is filled with jealousy. The Sadducees, the high priest, they were filled with jealousy. But the one who is most filled with jealousy is the enemy. So here's what he tries to do. He tries to steal the conviction and the commitment of every believer. He tries to dull our love for the Lord and soften our beliefs and make us lazy to our calling. And here he's trying to bind the ministry of the disciples. But look back at verse 19. Excuse me. In the night, as they're in prison, God sends an angel to open the doors of the prison and release them. And He does this for the express purpose that they would go back to the temple and preach the gospel and speak about Jesus Christ. Because where the enemy binds, God opens. When the enemy tries to bind us, God says, I am more powerful than you. I have defeated you forever. I have total control over you. You are nothing. Where you try to bind, I'm going to open. As a believer, you do not have to live in sin. As a believer, you do not have to live in bondage because he has freed us from that. He has given deliverance and freedom from sin to all who believe, and then He shows us the path of righteousness. And I want you to see this in verse, uh, verse, uh, not verse 10, I wrote the wrong word. I want you to see this in verse 19. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. Look at the next four words. And taking them out. In other words, He didn't just release them to find their own way out, even though it's clear from verse 23 that this was supernatural and it was hidden. It wasn't like, you know, shows that you see where they're sneaking through the corridors and they're hoping they don't run into a guard. 
This was a full and free release. The guards didn't know what was going on. It was hidden from their eyes. And the apostles walked down the hallway of the prison as the angel led them. And they walked right out and went back to where they belonged. But I want you to see here that the Spirit's words are not accidental. It says the angel took them out. That's not an insignificant detail. It shows how faithful and careful the Lord is when He guides us. I, I, I struggled to do this because the art of, of life gives us the weirdest pictures of angels. But I want you to, to try to really picture in your heart, Holy Spirit, help us now, what this looked like, what this felt like. As they're sitting in the prison and all of a sudden the door opens and there's an angel standing there and they know it's an angel. And as they walk right past the guards who are standing there and they don't see anything that's going on. And they walk right out. And the angel goes before them and he leads them and they walk right out the front doors of the building. Oh, God's leading is so good, isn't it? It's not haphazard or careless or, hey, sneak down the hallway and hopefully you won't run into somebody and if you do, just punch him in the face. I'm here. We're leaving. Door opens. Guards are standing there, wide awake. They walk down the hallway. The angel leads them. They don't have to sneak. They don't have to be shy. They don't have to cower. They just walk straight out. Listen, we're so tangible in our thinking, but we have to understand that God is faithful even in what we can't see. But His leading here has a very distinctive purpose. He didn't just open the door for them to escape. He says, now that you're free, get back to work. This is not time to go home and lock the door and live in fear this is not time to congratulate yourself that you trusted me and that I delivered you. Now, look at it. You have a bold assignment. And this bold assignment was going to put them right back in the fire of testing. This is the proving time for their conviction and their commitment. Listen, so many times we want the Lord's leading to be easy and uncomplicated and to not require much of us. And when it's not like that, we honestly get a little bit frustrated with Him. But He is more interested that we trust Him and fulfill the work that He wants us for, to do. And for the disciples, it is not time to hide. They get out in the middle of the night and they go early, look at it, at daybreak the next morning. And they go into the temple and they start to preach. This is before things really got cranked up for the day. It's not like this is noon where there are huge crowds and they can just kind of duck into the crowd and start speaking where the authorities will see them. They go at daybreak. They walk into the temple because apparently the, the chief priests and the council was not in the temple. And they walk in the temple when the crowds are still kind of filing in. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing subtle here. They just stand and they say, let us tell you about Jesus Christ. We don't preach for the approval of men. We preach for the approval of God. The council, oh, it cracks me up. The Spirit's got a sense of humor. The council shows up. They reconvene. Everybody walks in in their robes. They're all happy. And, oh, 
today's the day. They even call in some reinforcements. All the Senate from the sons of Israel. All right. Let's get this matter going. Bring the apostles in. Can you picture it? The guard goes to get them. And imagine his surprise. They aren't there. And I love how the Spirit lists what he says. Uh, the door was locked quite securely. The guards are still in their place. And everybody's perplexed. Imagine the buzz in the room. Come on, picture it now. Imagine, imagine what it was like when the messenger came back and said, they're not there. And then it gets even better. The next guy comes in and says, uh, those guys you put in prison, they're in the temple. And they're preaching about Jesus Christ. And they're teaching the people. And we have to infer from that statement that the people were listening. Let me finish with this. Notice the impact verse 26 that that news had on their accusers stay with me now instead of anger and a greater resolve to squash this movement once and for all and to harm the disciples with the power that they could use as leaders they actually start to fear what they're up against and they start to recognize the legitimacy of the power of God in them and they understand that they are not in control. And the Spirit says that when they sent guards to go get them, they said, don't grab them now. Don't be violent. Because we're really concerned that the people have turned and that we're going to get stoned. we stand for the word and the gospel it takes hold of people's hearts it is much more powerful than anything the opposition can throw at us the apostles and followers of Christ were just ordinary people but they had an amazingly effective ministry for the Lord their courage and confidence came from verse 11 from a great fear of the Lord they respected the Holy Spirit they understood that we can't test the Spirit. We can't undermine His truth. We have to walk by the Spirit. And as they walked by the Spirit, they had a unique power which came from yielding themselves to God's calling and not being driven by ego and not being driven by worry and not being driven by their own desires and for their need for attention. And as they did that, God led them so clearly and He put them in the right situations to bring people to Christ and even when they faced difficulty, they had confidence because they didn't sit and grit their teeth. They just understood that whatever you call us to do, Lord, we will do it. We need to stop and look at them right at this point because here the opposition stalls. The enemy will come back and he'll fight harder, but he's not going to win. The church is just going to get more powerful and the gospel is going to advance farther and farther. So at this point, they are strong and they are bold and they are ready 
and the lives of those that they come in contact with are significantly changed. Now I want to lay that picture out for us as our goal and challenge us as a church to develop a fresh hunger for what we see here and then to fervently seek the Lord and say, Lord, do that in our midst. Do this in our midst. Holy Spirit, overwhelm us with your presence. Give us the courage and the strength to be this bold and this confident and this effective in our ministry because people need Christ. People need Christ. Listen, the goal of the church is not going to change. The goal of the church is this. God, move in our midst. God, give us strength. God, give us boldness. And God, be effective despite our weaknesses. Be effective to draw people to yourself. Oh, man, be so. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we submit ourselves to you. Many days we feel like the apostles before Pentecost. Weak, unprepared, powerless, uncertain. But Lord, you have freed us from the bondage of sin. You have given us your Holy Spirit. You have transformed our nature. You have renewed our minds. And you have given us a tremendous calling to stand for you and to tell people about Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we see from this text, when we do that, people get saved. The ministry becomes powerful. The Spirit starts to work in ways that catch people's attention. And the opposition is weakened. Lord, I pray you would give each person in this room this morning a renewed desire to see this realized in their life. I pray as a congregation you would give us a renewed desire to see this happen in our midst. Only for the purpose of people getting saved and you being glorified. Father, if we can serve you in that way, if you can use us in that way, we will be beyond blessed. So Lord, whatever it is that needs to be removed from each of our hearts this morning, whatever we're still living in bondage to, Lord, it may be so difficult in our minds to walk away from that. But we have to because you can't bless us when we're living in sin. So Lord, give us the courage and give us the answers to take that stand. Father, we pray that your spirit would move with great power in our lives. We pray that you would do a fresh new work in our midst. Lord, we will praise you and honor you. Lord, we love you. 
we exalt you and praise you in advance with expectation for what you're going to do. We praise you in Jesus' name.